It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What the people in this country want to hear is slow politics. Slow politics. Hello and welcome to Slow Politics from Tortoise. I'm Matt Dancona. And I'm Lara Spirit. In this series, we're digging deep into the world of politics, but in a distinctive tortoise style. In each episode, we'll tell you about one issue, story or person driving the agenda in Westminster. We'll be trying to uncover some of the deeper forces at work and tell you the inside story on the people who, often behind the scenes, make things happen. Today, we're going to be talking about political ideas, or more accurately, their general absence from mainstream politics. It's really striking that there is so little heavyweight thought nowadays, I think, that connects to the political process and to policy making. And I do think this is new. If you go back to the late 70s, for example, the movement that became known as Thatcherism was already being cooked up in really buzzing think tanks like the Institute of Economic Affairs and the Centre for Policy Studies. And I guess you could say the same for Demos and for the Institute for Public Policy Research in the creation of New Labour in the 90s. So there's a great Isaiah Berlin quote uh, that um, philosophical concepts nurtured in the stillness of a professor's study could destroy a civilization. Uh, and I think in the 20th century, politicians really did believe that ideas had that power and that the, the Cold War, you know, it wasn't just a battle between two economic and military systems, but it, it was a genuine philosophical conflict between two ways of seeing the world. But how many politicians genuinely think that way in 2022? or see their trade primarily in terms of what happens when ideas meet political practice. So most, I think, seem more interested in populist rhetoric and Instagram hits than in wading through the works of thinkers like John Rawls or Frederick Hayek or Hannah Arendt. Well, one politician who still does believe in reading and thinking and indeed in writing is Jesse Norman, the Tory MP for Hereford and South Herefordshire who's the author of acclaimed biographies of the 18th century founder of conservatism, Edmund Burke, and of Adam Smith, um, whom he portrays as far more than the father of neoliberalism. And Jesse Norman has been in the news, of course, because of a coruscating letter he sent to Boris Johnson on the morning of the confidence vote, withdrawing his support from the Prime Minister. We thought that he'd be a good person to talk to about the broken connection between ideas and politics whether this is really true and if it matters. And we started by asking him about that letter that he wrote to Johnson. So, Jesse Norman, the letter you sent um, to the Prime Minister is interesting because it deals less in personality and and more in what you describe as the government lacking, quotes, a sense of mission. 
and the absence of, again, I'm quoting, a decent proper conservatism. Can you elaborate on what these terms mean beyond the usual bromides? What were you actually driving at? Well, I mean, the letter was designed in part to summarise a set of concerns that had been building in my mind for a time and were very widely shared by my constituents and, as it appeared, by many other people across the Conservative Party and, indeed, I think, in the country in general. And they didn't just include Partygate. It was important to realise that Partygate might be the way in for some people to some of these concerns, but they really went to questions of policy and questions of governing style, if you like, or approach. And there are also some quite fundamental issues relating to the Constitution and what appears to be a move towards a, a more presidential form of government. And all of these things, to my mind, are at odds with a decent, proper conservatism. And so I did want to flag, although, of course, in a letter such as this, one could never spell out or elaborate on, I did want to flag that there is a another way of thinking of each of these issues of policy and government and the Constitution that, as well as personal conduct, that we could think about moving towards and that might not just lead to better government, but even conceivably better election results than might be expected for the Conservative Party. And it is really important to see those things too separately. I mean, I, I, it's sometimes regarded as a kind of trump card that, oh, any other alternative to a current incumbent would lead to the loss of an election or falling short in some seats. But actually, what is the point? Fundamental conservative issue. What is the point of getting elected? Answer, in order to be able to govern, and not just govern, but govern well. And what does govern well mean? According to proper, in my sense, conservative principles that people see in advance, endorse, would like to see replicated, and would be prepared to support in future. So to your your point about principles and purpose, um, where do we go from here? I mean, the, the PM clearly has decided he, he did his, his intention is not to go anywhere, told the cabinet they can now draw a line under Partygate, get on with um, cutting the cost of government and so on. How do you see things proceeding? Well, it's a matter for commentators and speculators to conclude how the present saga plays itself out. And I'm not sure I really want to comment on that. I mean, I think... There clearly is a fin de siècle sense about things. And one of the points I made in the letter was that to sustain what I think has become something of a charade is not just deeply counterproductive to good government, but also a very specific insult to the tens of thousands of people who support, volunteer for, campaign for, and represent the Conservative Party in this country. And so I do feel that this current state of affairs needs to wind its way ideally to an orderly conclusion. But part of my letter was also to flag that actually we should be looking upwards and onwards as to what a a better version, indeed a, a truly, a genuinely conservative version of the present governing approach might be. So in terms of what a better approach might look like, I want to go back to 2006 when you wrote Compassionate Conservatism, which was the pamphlet for the policy 
exchange, which set out in a way that most politicians have never done or have never had the chance to do. And in that sense, you're unique. What your personal brand of conservative philosophy might look like. And I wonder if I can ask you many years on whether or not you think you were successful in what you set out and what exactly it was that you meant by that. In the case of compassionate conservatism, the key, it's a slightly devalued phrase now. And part of the reason is because it was also picked up by George W. Bush and W. connected it to a kind of religious inspiration for certain kind of policymaking in America. And that in itself is odd because America is supposed to be a country defined by a separation of church and state. But it also had nothing to do with the intellectual strands that I was picking on. So compassion in the sense that I mean it is not a religious idea specifically, and it's not in particular an idea of pity. I'm not sure, in fact, I'm fairly certain that you can't make pity a principle of statecraft. Compassion in the sense I mean it is the Adam Smithian sense of fellow feeling. And that idea in Smith is the psychological starting point for understanding the nature of humans as social animals and therefore the nature of how they live together and therefore in some sense the basis on which they could live together better. And Smith lays out in his work, and I can't forbear from saying that if anyone wants a good insight into it, they can read my book on Smith, but um, um, both in The Wealth of Nations, which everyone knows about, although few have read, and in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and then in in between in the unpublished lectures on jurisprudence and the very earliest work he did on uh, language and communication, he lays out an entire way of thinking about human interaction, which puts exchange at the centre of it, and therefore is in that sense about a compassion or shared psychological sense of fellow feeling and that ranges from the bit that everyone knows goods and exchange uh, goods and services being exchanged to the exchange of moral regard or esteem to the exchange of language and of course to the kinds of evolutionary ideas of law and the development of property rights that then undergird smith's idea of commercial society which is a much more inclusive and interesting and somewhat more moralized idea of a society than you get with the idea of capitalism, which is a which is a nineteenth century concept, and then alongside that, just to fill out the picture, Smith and Burke have a lot of overlaps. Is the th- thought of of Edmund Burke, and of course Burke doesn't just think about the relationship humans have with each other; and he also thinks about the relationship that humans have with their predecessors, with history, with the society that they've inherited, and with their successors. And therefore, out of that comes the idea of society as a compact between the generations. And that's specifically conservative because it places, as all freedom and opportunity places, a responsibility on the on the present generation not to privilege itself, but to pick up what it's inherited to enhance and improve it and then to pass it on to the next generation. And, and I think those ideas remain utterly compelling. How do you think that the marketplace of ideas for political discussion has changed compared to when you wrote that document? So I was interested in when the debate on the windfall tax was happening and before the government's U-turn, you had come out in support of a windfall tax and there had been a brief philosophical debate about Adam Smith because a new site had posted a quote uh, with a kind of much misrepresented picture of what Adam Smith's policy on tax was. uh, And you added a kind of brief rejoinder, which um, gave a level of uh, clarity and detail to the debate that some would say is often lacking. And I'm wondering if you think that social media has changed the way that we discuss political ideas. 
Yes, I think even to use the phrase exchanging political ideas or debating is a rather kind description <laughs> of it. What we're seeing at the moment is a phenomenon which really unites two particular developments. One is that sound bites have got shorter and shorter. So I think it's been shown that the average sign about 30, 40 years ago was 45 seconds. Now it's 10 seconds. So it's very hard to even begin to acknowledge the complexity of a set of ideas. And that in turn leads to politicians who are afraid to talk about ideas, not just because it's anti-British to be intellectual, but also or anti-English in particular, but also because they don't want to be deemed to be engaged in anything that might be complicated and therefore taxing. So it's a profoundly insulting view. My constituents are perfectly capable of understanding an almost indefinitely complex set of ideas if they are introduced in a way that allows them to share the conversation, understand them, and develop them in their own ideas. And the second development that's taken place, I'm afraid, is a technical development. And Jonathan Haidt's been particularly good on this, which is the way in which social media have begun to use retweet buttons and sharing buttons, which has therefore moved social media from being modes of communication that might be genuinely engaging on a one-to-one -one basis into being one-to-many performative, demonstrative, and therefore potentially virtue signaling actions. And I think those two things really embarrass, impoverish, and undermine public debate. Again, I think part of the function of a really well-developed and successfully operating political environment is to have politicians who are prepared to make arguments and not to talk down to their voters and to explore complexity and to recognize that positions and ideas evolve and that people aren't taken in by gotcha moments. And I think if we do that, we're playing essentially by the rules of the game of civilized conversation. And I think we'll get much better politics from it as well. Do you think that, I mean, if you go back to the Compassionate Conservatism pamphlet, that whatever happened during the coalition years and, you know, the achievements and disappointments, there was a time of ferment. There, was some, there, was, there were genuine ideas about. So how does that party go from where it was... Uh, or even in opposition, um, the high season of Cameronism or whatever you want to call it, to become what it is today, you know, the party of resettlement of refugees to Rwanda, BBC bashing imperial units and so on. I mean, has that actually been a genuine change in what it means to be a, a modern conservative, a modern conservative, or are, are we talking about a, a shift in you know, a lack of intellectual substance and depth, a change in political practice. I mean, this is a very specific thing, I think, going on at the moment, which is that, you know, number 10 has decided that for reasons of political advantage, it wants to pick a series of fights and exacerbate some cultural war divisions. And from that point of view, if you think that's a good idea, then a deliberately provocative policy like the Rwanda policy or the potentially throwing aside Article 16 and the Northern Ireland Protocol or... Uh, even the privatization of Channel 4, these things are all grist to that milk. They tend to be terribly bad policy. And in at least two of those cases, I suspect potentially illegal. But that's something that this administration has just decided to do for political advantage. And I think it's extremely regrettable. On the wider question, of course, a government that comes in after a protracted period in opposition is a government that's had to think very hard about the value of ideas and 
it's built up around it an ecosystem of people who are trying to contribute to that. And I think it's, it's Henry Kissinger's dictum that you know, parties get elected when they're full of ideas and they get turfed out when they run out of ideas becomes uh, very salient. When you've been in office for a while, of course, there's a tendency for people to get, uh, you know, fat and happy and uh, to believe that incumbency somehow creates its own prerequisites and perks and advantages and to exploit it on that basis. And that takes some of the pressure away from the need to be renewing the argument, re-engaging with people and flagging the continuing energy, vivacity and vigor of one's own ideas. And then, of course, there's one other further thing which you see from inside government. And you'll recall I was a minister for five years in three different departments, which is that Politicians get tired. And there's a very good case, inadequately explored, I think, by government, which is the Pep Guardiola technique of rotating your team, where you know in advance that although you got rotated out this time, you might get rotated back, and therefore it's not in that sense personal. Because that then allows people to recover, take some time out, do some thinking, recharge their intellectual batteries, and come back renewed and invigorated. When people have just been in power for a long time, they're just exhausted. And that has an intellectual effect on them. And it means in particular that their minds tend to contract back from a rational interrogation of ideas and a desire to play with them and get engaged with them into a kind of a much more aesthetic sensibility, which is, is this idea good for me or is it bad for me? And therefore, what is my reaction? And that's bad, A, because it completely misrepresents the subtleties of what's going on. It restricts the number of ideas available, but it also creates a kind of hair trigger sensibility. And of course, again, social media and 24-hour news cycle have done nothing but worsen those effects. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you update your theory of compassionate conservatism if you were going to write it now so when you wrote it in 2006 I think inflation was at two percent you'd had 13 years of unbroken prosperity and obviously in the years since we've had these two massive and seismic events in the form of the 08 crash and more recently the pandemic is there any way that you would update your thinking now that these are behind us the book is and as every book is in a sense a in a partial function of its times because there are salient issues that require intellectual engagement and consideration. In that sense, it is both a an attempt to capture and distill a kind of conservative wisdom, but also to apply them to a moment in which 
the country was in a somewhat different place than it is from what it is now, particularly economically. But in another sense, it isn't, because one of the things that compassionate conservatism did was to diagnose a kind of moral panic and a worry in across a whole swathe of policy areas and to think about whether or not a more uh, inclusive approach based on the devolution of more power from the centre to institutions intermediate between the centre and the citizen and then also to individuals, that that would be part of the solution to kind of address those issues. And I don't think that moral panic's gone away. In fact, I think it's got worse. And we are living now in an extraordinarily sentimentalized era of politics. And again, social media has a very important impact on that because you get a lot of what you might call minority government because particular interests are extraordinarily well enfranchised and able to create narratives of harm and deprivation. And that makes it extraordinarily hard to manage a continuing consensus from within government. So that all these issues have changed. But the ideas themselves, I would argue, remain extraordinarily pungent. And I've argued and I've described, just touched on now, how Smith and Burke and others who we can bring to the picture have this continuing relevance. A little example. So Adam Smith, a few people know it. Again, they can enjoy the book. But, you know, Smith talks about the evils of materialism. Smith's incredibly interesting on how the development of commercial society was accompanied by and naturally evolved in a way that was levelling, but might also produce great inequalities and also was itself the product of opulence and softness. And part of Smith has a kind of yearning admiration for peoples who are more warlike, more military, tougher in that sense. And it's hard not to think in those terms now when you think of our reaction to Ukraine, for example, where we have had to discover a politically energized and energetic and a military aspect to our lives that many had thought had gone forever and didn't want back. I wanted to ask you about the appeal of intellectual biography to a political practitioner specifically. What do figures such as Burke and Smith have to tell us and tell politicians and voters today? Because that seems to be a big part of your personal story is that you've you've found in, in, in intellectual biography a means not just of telling amazing life stories, but actually of, of excavating ideas and, and giving them fresh life. Well, that's extremely generous of you to say, um, uh, Matthew. I mean, one way of thinking about it is, look, I tried philosophy with uh, compassionate conservatism. That, that, <laughs> that took me a certain distance. And I thought, well, actually, we need to take these messages and kind of replay them in terms that people can get behind and understand more easily and, and more accessibly. And intellectual biography is a way you can do it. And the way I do it in particular is slightly unusual because I give people the life story first. And then I go back and re-excavate that from an intellectual perspective. So you've had the honey that's got you into the book of thinking about how this life took place and what's the Seven Years' War really about and the American War of Independence, these incredible events at the end of the 18th century. And then there's a pivot moment halfway through. It's very bad luck when you go back and think about what are the ideas about representative government or duties of an MP or responsibility to future generations that come out of those that life story. And that is true. Of course, it is in the nature of intellectual ideas that they can never be straightforwardly applied. Now, every generation has got to do the thinking about what matters, why it matters, and how it's going to be reconsidered here. And therefore, there isn't a way of just writing out what the answer is, as though this were a kind of um, computer program, we're going to run it on the current problems of today. I mean, one thing I suppose it is worth saying is that 
you do have a different sense of what matters with more of a historical sensibility. And a historical sensibility is one of the things that's really been lost over the last 20 or 30 years. The other thing, I suppose, is that I've always tried to make the argument that although no one likes to use the word philosophy, a philosophical consideration is really important. You know, people should do it even if they don't want to call it philosophy. They should be clear about what the ideas are that they're talking about. They should abide by certain rules of explanation. That's playing politics in the right way. It's not cheating. It's introducing people to ideas and allowing them to make up their own minds. And if you think about how that plays out, one of the complexities, again, comes out of Smith, is the idea that our politics, our society, our commercial actions are themselves constantly evolving. It's a Smithian idea. Uh, But also what's interesting is ideas require constant tending. They're They're like plants. They die. So, you know, it's funny because I remember vividly one of the first books we ever discussed was um, your 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 late father-in-law's wonderful book, mm. Tom Bingham's book on mm. the rule of law, mm. which is, I think, a classic. Mm. But I don't think either of us at the time would have thought that, you know, come 2022, the rule of law would have actually been a concept that was needed in itself to be defended in political discourse. No. I mean, one of the things that was so striking and the original impetus for the book, I remember very vividly, was that we had started to have in in statute mentions of this thing called the rule of law, which had previously sat in a tacit understanding of the Constitution. And Tom thought, well, hold on a second, if this thing is now in public debate, and specifically it's been mentioned in statute, then someone ought to say what it is. And he gave this extraordinary lecture, the David Williams lecture, where he, in which he spelt out, took it apart. And then the book came out of that. And of course, what is so thrilling is that it's not only a wonderful book and it won the George Orwell Prize and been endlessly reprinted and read and should be mandatory reading for anyone who's interested in more or less anything. But, you know, he was able to publish it before he died. Can I ask that, along with his book, which other writers and thinkers would you recommend reading for anybody interested in thinking about a new form of conservatism informed by ideas today? Obviously, I would say this, wouldn't I, that we have to start with the classics because that's the framework. And, of course, being conservative, I think that the present is at least partially determined by the legacies and continuities of the past, and therefore I would say that, wouldn't I? But, of course, there are also very interesting people who may be conservatives or may not be conservatives that one has to engage with. So you have to engage with the challenges to conservatism as well as the, the developments in the thought. Now, if you were thinking about challenges, of course, you've got an almost indefinite array. You've got people like mildly deranged, like the Yanis Varoufakis of the world, who I love Yanis dearly, but I, I hope you, I don't think you would mind if I said he was mildly deranged. You've got people like, at more seriously, you've obviously got the kind of thinking of a Thomas Piketty, someone like that. That's going to be part of the reflection that you have in this area. What are the implications to the extent there are? Do you accept the implications of the kind of changes that you've seen? There's obviously an incredible story about the way in which inequality has changed, Branko Milanovic, that kind of stuff. Very interesting. Uh, And then on the right, of course, there are, I mean, I've I've mentioned Jonathan Haidt, but I, I think a lot of his work in helping us to think about some of the ways in which contemporary discourse is shaped by developments and a developed understanding of human psychology, human sociology, are going to have an impact, if not on the ideas, then on the way you present them and the way you think about them. But there's a further group, which is, I think, it's really important for conservatives to think very hard about these issues of gender and sex and quite a quite woke issues, because 
I mean, you know, uh, at, at the heart of much of a, a dialogue which structures itself around power, which, of course, a lot of the critique from the critical left does, is is going to be a, a, a dialogue about the use of language. One has to defend one's use of language. And it's also going to be a dialogue about the past. And if, for example... You think that um, you know, all empires are intrinsically evil and have no redeeming ca- characteristics of any kind, then a conservative must intellectually, as a matter of obligation, go back and interrogate that claim for whether it's true or not and think about it. And if it is, then that ought to be part of a conservative reflection on the issues. Now, Tories will not like to hear this, but it is actually really important to ask the question whether and in what sense empire has been evil. And, of course, the British record is by no means as as ugly as has been represented, but there are large areas in which it is very ugly, and one has to be clear about that. And if one thinks about legacies and continuities of the past, it's not inappropriate to ask, what are the legacies and continuities of that past? And if you do that, you might discover and decide that there were offsetting factors that we wanted to reflect on as well, but you can't duck the interrogation. You can't duck thinking about it, in my So, So the cabinet's summer reading list should include Satnam Sanghera's Empire Land and a bit of Foucault. Well, <laughs> certainly a bit of Foucault. I'm, 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 dare I sound unpersuaded by the merits of Empire Land, but maybe that's But that's, that's wrong. very, very interesting. So, so yeah. Foucault, Foucault gets a tick. So every... every F- Foucault, Foucault <laughs> on the... You have to understand the critique. Yes. Um, I would get, listen, I'm not a Foucault expert by any means, um, but some understanding of what that could if one's going to engage intellectually and of course I wouldn't expect working politicians to do that um, but if one's going to actually think about the ideas and the source of ideas the nature of the criticism you can't meet a critique of power power and language and language unless you've actually reflected on where that's coming from and why it might be mistaken so that was Jesse Norman talking to Lara and me I think what's interesting is that you can hear the extent to which his letter to the Prime Minister reflected a much broader and genuine and long-developing frustration with the decline and decay of ideas in politics and serious thought as a political force, but also, um, tellingly, uh, a sense of optimism that all is not lost. That's it from us. Thank you for listening to Slow Politics. You've been listening to me, Lara Spirit. And me, Matt Dancona. We'll be back soon. The producer is Amelia Janssen. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more about British politics... Why not become a member of Tortoise, where you can read Matt's weekly column looking at the biggest issues in British and global politics and get access to more stories from our team of journalists. Just go to tortoisemedia.com slash friend and enter Lara50 or Matt50 to get a year's membership for just £50. Mm-hmm.